On June 30th, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its decision in the Hobby Lobby case, ruling that for-profit corporations with religious objections do not have to adhere to the new federal mandate that employers provide their employees with co-payment-free coverage for all 20 FDA-approved methods of contraception. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with George Annis, Professor of Health Law, Bioethics, and Human Rights at the Boston University School of Public Health. We're discussing the Hobby Lobby decision and its context and its implications. Professor Annis, in their perspective article on the Hobby Lobby case, Cohen et al. also examined another recent Supreme Court decision that struck down a Massachusetts law that had imposed a 35-foot buffer zone around abortion clinics. Can you place the Hobby Lobby decision in the context not only of that case, but of other recent decisions and legal trends regarding women's reproductive rights? What does that evolving picture look like? I don't think it looks very good, but you could put them in one context that says these are both cases that take religious freedom and freedom of expression, First Amendment, very, very seriously. And if you look at them that way, they're not so bad. If you look at them from women's reproductive rights, you'd say, well, these are actually both cases about abortion, as Justice Scalia did say. And in that case, women's rights did not do well. So I don't think we know how this is all going to play out, but we know that abortion is still extraordinarily controversial in the country, and the court is still split five to four on whether it's going to stay a constitutional right. A key question in Hobby Lobby was whether corporations are people for the purposes of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and therefore whether corporations have the same religious rights that individuals do. What questions does the decision raise for you on that front? What possibilities does that open up? Well, that was the most surprising thing to me. I actually thought it was ludicrous to even consider that a for-profit corporation could exercise religion. Now, we did have Citizens United, which says a for-profit corporation has to have freedom of speech and spend money for political candidates. Most people think that's a big stretch as well. But whatever stretch you think Citizens United is, this is a much bigger stretch for a for-profit corporation whose main job is to make money and satisfy the shareholders' investment to say that they can have religious freedom. I mean, suffice it to say, no court has ever said that before. It's, that's brand new law, and that's the most significant change in the law in Hobby Lobby. The second question was, well, we weren't looking at the First Amendment issue on religious exercise. We were looking at a statute. You're right, the freedom, the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. And the question was just, did that statute apply to for-profit corporations? And the court said it did. What it said is that the statute made no exceptions. The statute didn't define persons at all. It just covered persons whose exercise of religion was substantially burdened by a new law. And the court, again, it was five to four, but the court said that covers for-profit corporations as well as not-for-profit corporations. So a third context in which we can look at the decision is the range of litigation and other moves against the Affordable Care Act. What kind of bite does this take out of the ACA? Well, it's like death by a thousand cuts, I think. The ACA is being attacked every way people who are against the ACA can think of attacking it. This was actually a pretty original way to attack the ACA by just looking at employers. On the other hand, most insurance in the United States, we all know, is provided by employers. So as long as we have an employer-based health care system, even what, which we're building on with the ACA, that's going to be vulnerable from those attacks. The other attack that we have two splitting courts on now is whether or not if the state doesn't have an exchange, if your state doesn't have an exchange and you buy insurance on the exchange, whether you can get a federal subsidy for that insurance. Of course, if you can't, since large numbers of states didn't do their own 
exchange, the ACA essentially, I want to say it dies, but it's mortally wounded. So it's being attacked many places, and I think it's unclear how it's going to come out. I mean, how it's going to come out probably is going to be a function of the next election, the midterm elections. A few days after the Supreme Court issued the Hobby Lobby decision, it granted Wheaton College, a Christian college in Illinois, a temporary injunction exempting it from the requirement under the accommodation offered to religious nonprofits, the requirement that it apply to have its health insurance provider cover contraceptives so that it would not itself have to do that. All the college has to do now is let the government know that it's eligible for the exemption. What do you make of that move, and what's that going to lead to? Well, the overall question in Hobby Lobby was how close a connection does your religion have to have to the thing the government is making you do. The government wasn't making anybody violate their religion in Hobby Lobby. The government was requiring that their insurance company that you use cover contraceptives. And if you didn't want to insure your employees, then you had to pay a penalty, actually called a tax, under the Affordable Care Act. I thought whether or not your employees use contraception is their decision, and they should be responsible for it, and that's not your religious responsibility. But anyway... We lost that one. The second question now in the Wheaton College case is, all right, nobody has to cover anything, and we're going to give an accommodation or an exception for religious institutions, which college qualifies to be one. And all you have to do to get that accommodation is to file a form, especially self-certify, saying I'm a religious corporation and it's against my religion to do this. And remarkably, even though the court didn't decide in Hobby Lobby whether that was a substantial burden on your exercise of religion. In taking this Wheaton case and giving it a temporary injunction, saying it was, it raises the question that the court might decide that it is, which, as the three women justices on the court have said, is perverse and seems to even go against Hobby Lobby, even though technically Justice Alito, who wrote the majority opinion, said they weren't deciding that issue. They were just assuming the issue that contraception is a substantial interest, a compelling government interest to cover. You point out in your recent Health Law, Ethics, and Human Rights article on the Hobby Lobby case that the court's ruling is both a consequence of and a new contributor to the fragmentation and inequitability of the U.S. healthcare system, which you've just talked about a minute ago. Can you elaborate on that relationship for us? How are current efforts handling those problems, making them better or worse? Sure. The basic philosophy behind the Affordable Care Act was that everybody should be covered for an essential group of health care, and everybody should have the same coverage. And that's where the contraceptions came from. It wasn't in the bill in the ACA that all 20 types of contraception should be covered. What was in the bill is that preventive care should be covered, and that women's preventive care should be determined by Health and Human Services, which then turned that job over to the Institute of Medicine, and that's where the list of 20 contraceptives came from. And the notion was that everybody, all women in this case, should have access to the same decent preventive care. What's going on when that was challenged is, of course, a further fragmentation of our healthcare system. Say, no, some women should have access to it, but if you're working for a religious corporation, or in this case, a for-profit corporation that has religious objections to contraception, then you're not covered. And we can play that out. Different organizations can have different policies and cover different things. And that just goes in exactly the opposite direction of a trend toward universal coverage. 
As we've said, the Hobby Lobby decision was based on the court's interpretation of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, an act of Congress. So can Congress act to change that law to thereby essentially change the Hobby Lobby decision? And if so, how would Congress go about that? That's an excellent question. And Congress, since it was an act of Congress, not required by the Constitution, Congress could change the statute. Now, Congress, we don't want, I don't want to say Congress is totally dysfunctional, but Congress has a hard time passing anything. But if it wanted to, it's already tried in the U.S. Senate and failed to have an exemption for women's reproductive health. The better exemption, I think, would be to define person and say that a person, they want to include not-for-profit religious corporations, fine, but that a person does not include for-profit corporations. That would be the simplest fix. Do you think that that is a likely fix? I think it's possible in the U.S. Senate, but the House's majority is committed to blocking or destroying or making impossible to implement the Affordable Care Act. So they're unlikely to pass anything that's going to be seen as a victory for Obama and Obamacare. So that's why I said before, I think the fall election is a big deal, and it doesn't look that great right now. As you say, the Affordable Care Act has been attacked from all sides. So final question, I want to ask you about another area of attack. Two appeals courts recently came to opposite conclusions about whether Americans who obtain their insurance coverage through federally run exchanges, as opposed to state run exchanges, are eligible for subsidies. Where do you think that line of attack will end up and what do you see for the ACA as a whole? Yeah, I mean, that's a very dangerous line of attack because if it's successful, it destroys the ACA because it lets people make the decision to buy health care after they need it. And it doesn't get the healthy people because they're not penalized. It doesn't get all the healthy people in the pool. I think that the judges, and there's two courts, six judges altogether, four of the six said that they thought the argument was not very persuasive. They thought that under existing law, which is true of the so-called Chevron case, administrative agencies charged with implementing a statute have presumptive authority, essentially, to uh, interpret the statute. And the Internal Revenue Service has interpreted the statute as saying that it can grant subsidies to both people in both state-run and federal-run exchanges. I think that's right. I think courts should defer to that. You, you hate to predict anything with the Supreme Court, but I think it would be extraordinary for the U.S. Supreme Court if this case gets there, and it will only get there if the circuits are split on this, for the U.S. Supreme Court to find that the Affordable Care Act is essentially not going to make it because they disagree with the administrative agency's interpretation of what is clearly in this case, at least, a poorly drafted statute. And normally what administrative agencies try to do is come up with the most reasonable interpretation of the statute. And certainly the most reasonable interpretation is that nobody expected all these states to opt out of exchanges. <laughs> and if they did, Congress's intent seems to be pretty clear that on either exchange, the law should apply. Thank you, Professor Annis.